Usually in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, when we talk about power dynamics, we usually talk about the faculty member as having the power and the students don't have the power. It's the faculty member that gets to decide how a class runs and what grades students get on assignments or whether students go on to graduate school or whether students have access to internships and job placements and all of these things and that's absolutely true. But what we're seeing in the news, in the media, we're seeing all these reports about faculty members getting fired and the nucleus in a lot of those situations is a faculty member doing something in the classroom and then students taking it upon themselves to elevate it to the department chair. So we're having these trends where students are owning their power in educational settings and then acting on that. So students are elevating what's happening in the classroom to their dean, to their provost, sometimes to their university vice presidents. Students are taking things up in the classroom. There are faculty members that negate or push off entire units of their curriculum. They've had conversations uh, in previous semesters that they feel like they're no longer able to have because of the risk that's involved, the risk of a student reporting something and then they're immediately losing their job. And that is happening. Uh, we do see that. What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Help Students Win, where we talk about all things education. My name is Jordan Davis. I'm a professional speaker, founder of JD Speaks, and your podcast host. And today we'll be recapping the American Association of College and Universities annual meeting. So this is a huge conference, one of the biggest higher education conferences of the year, and I gained so many valuable insights and I was actually able to contribute myself as a session presenter. So you'll get to hear a little bit about that in the playbook. Uh, our, you know, in our usual segment of the playbook, you're going to hear a little bit more about internships. In the last episode, I dropped three gems and I'm going to give you a few more in this episode. And then at the very end, if we have some time, I'm going to get to the weekly read, but it all depends on how the flow of this conversation goes. I learned to actually wear my Apple watch while I record this so I can keep an eye on the time. And I hope that helps all of us. So not just me when it comes to recording and editing, but then also make sure that um, I'm hitting all the points to give you the most value possible. And so as I mentioned, uh, to start with this episode's topic, we got to talk about the AACNU annual conference. For those of you who are not familiar, this is an annual conference that is usually held in Washington, D.C., but it's been held all over the country. Sometimes uh, it's held on the West Coast. Uh, this year it was held in snowy D.C. I'm sure several of my listeners have uh, received a lot of snow and some cold weather. Uh, it was freezing cold this week, though, uh, for AACNU gathering provosts, uh, deans, professors, students, staff members, counselors, career uh, service professionals, again, from all across the country. We're talking about community colleges, four-year colleges, you name it. Um, education professionals uh, came from all over for this convening. And 
when it comes to the topics that were discussed at this conference, there were three dominating ones uh, that I noticed. And the first is the political polarization uh, that is becoming more characteristic of education, not just K through 12, but in higher education too. Uh, mental health was a huge topic. If you scroll through the list of workshops and sessions that people could attend, mental health was definitely a theme that we saw over and over again. Um, and then college to career pipeline. So thinking about preparing students to go into careers um, and how we can design our curriculum, how we can design our high impact practices and how we infuse that within the curriculum so that students are getting the most out of those high impact uh, opportunities. And so I'm not gonna talk about the college to career pipeline today, uh, but I'm gonna talk a little bit about the mental health aspect of higher education and some insights that I got from my time at the conference. And then I'm gonna spend a lot of time talking about political polarization. Uh, if you're a teacher, I know this is probably top of mind for you. If you're a principal or a school administrator, I know that this is probably top of mind for you too. Um, and so we're gonna unpack that together. Now, I actually had the opportunity to present uh, with a fabulous panel of students who are a part of the Engelhardt Project's Student Advisory Council. And so many of you know that I work full time at Georgetown University at our Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship, which is a, essentially our Center for Teaching and Learning. And I presented on behalf of Georgetown talking about our work on inclusive pedagogy, but more specifically integrating topics of well-being into undergraduate courses and what that work entails. And so I was able to facilitate this conversation with students as a roundtable discussion. So it's me, uh, it's three other students, and we had about, I'd say, eight to 10 university leaders from around the country. And so these are vice presidents for diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are academic provosts. These are deans. Uh, we had uh, several professors join us throughout the conversation, and people are coming and going. You know, they're sitting down for 30 minutes, uh, then heading to their next session. Uh, but if we really got deep into really the work that it requires in order to bring about uh, inclusive pedagogy and to create a culture of community, a sense of community and belonging among students so that all students are getting the most out of their educational experiences. And as we got into the conversation, the students are amazing. They're bringing up examples of what they see in the classroom as being effective. Obviously, these are all students who care very much about student mental health and well-being. And so they talked about what their work looks like in advocating for uh, positive student mental health and what that looks like inside of the classroom, kind of guiding faculty and being leaders themselves and encouraging faculty to take on some of those uh, inclusive teaching strategies. And throughout the midst of the conversation, there was one question that I wanted to pin and bring to you all today. Um, and it was a university provost for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he asked, you know, as we're talking about all these inclusive teaching practices, they, see, they all seem self-explanatory. Like they all seem like these are things that every faculty member should be doing. It seems like it's common sense. But why is it that faculty aren't doing them? Like what is stopping professors from teaching this way? These things seem so simple. What are the barriers to faculty teaching this way? And this is such a great conversation and I appreciate it because when we talk about our university leaders, they themselves might have experience in the classroom, but they don't always get the chance to hear directly from faculty as far as what they encounter in the classroom or even the challenges that faculty face when it comes to their teaching. And so um, there's really two 
And I was able to answer this question along with the students, but I think there were two main answers to this question that I think could be helpful for a lot of my listeners. And the first one is that I've identified through my work at Georgetown and looking at other centers for teaching and learning across the country, and there aren't very many. And then even looking at colleges and universities and their approach to professional development for faculty. Uh, I'm fortunate to work at a center for teaching and learning where we're well staffed. I would say we're about uh, 60 people deep in our center, full-time staff and graduate associates included. There are some colleges and universities that might have three instructional designers for the entire university and they have one instructional designer per college. So you have your school of business, you have your school of law, you have your school of nursing, and each one of those schools has one instructional designer. So there isn't necessarily a team that has expertise on inclusive pedagogy and has expertise on online learning and building online courses. You might have an instructional designer that has some skills in each of those things, but to have a center that is dedicated to improving teaching It's not something that's all that common. And so I really led my answer with, there's no room for educators to practice because the support that educators receive at the college level when it comes to their teaching is minimal. And a lot of us listening to this know that university colleges and universities in the US are incentivized to pump money, to pump time and pump resources into research. And so if you're able to establish yourself in your research as a university, then you get grant funding in order to continue that. You get funding from uh, philanthropic organizations, from nonprofits that are trying to do really good work and you do research for them. People's whole positions are paid by grants that they receive in order to do the research. And so the research is like the primary service, at least internally, that colleges and universities care about. And it really goes to show that there, again, there's no support around educators trying new things. One, to learn about new teaching practices in a way that's communal. So not just reading an article on on EdSurge or inside higher ed about this new practice. And those things are great. And they're also hard to find too when you talk about like finding actual uh, teaching practices. There's a big body of research that shows that when faculty get to talk to each other, when professors have the opportunity to learn from each other, and this works in both K-12 settings and in higher ed, when faculty are able to talk one-on-one or in groups about new teaching strategies, they're more likely to actually carry out those new teaching strategies. They're more likely to advance toward inclusive pedagogy and even just improving their teaching in general. And so, I addressed this question by realizing, again, being an educator, it could be a really isolating position. And so in higher ed, a lot of higher ed professors, most of them are adjuncts. And so if you're teaching part-time and you're coming from your nine to five or you're coming from your busy job, you're literally dropping into campus for an hour, dropping into campus for an hour and a half, and you're teaching a course and you're leaving, right? So you might even go a whole semester 
having only one conversation with your department chair or two conversations with your department chair. You might go an entire semester not talking to anybody about your teaching. And in the work that I do, I couldn't imagine going an entire semester not being able to process, not being able to ask questions and learn. With faculty, the work that I do with faculty and the work that I do with students. And so it's our it's up to our universities to provide support for faculty to get to to get together and to talk to each other about their teaching. And through that, you see the barriers that prevent faculty from being more inclusive, that prevents them um, from really addressing the needs of their students and presenting their knowledge and their expertise in a way that really resonates with students. I had a conversation with somebody at the conference, not going to say their position or where they were uh, as far as what university they were at, but they essentially said, you know, when they were coming up as a teaching assistant in their PhD program and, and they were teaching a course for uh, the professor of the course, you know, they taught this section, the professor essentially said, just do what I do. So it's literally like a lot of TAs are getting instructions from their faculty member to just get up and lecture just like their professor did. And so we pass down these traditions of teaching and learning that are antiquated, that are not backed by teaching and learning research. A lot of faculty aren't even aware of the science of teaching and learning or were even prompted to learn about the science of teaching and learning when it comes to interleaving the study habits, when it comes to uh, Bloom's taxonomy and the different ways of engaging students. A lot of professors don't know about those things. And so as a professor, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know that the teaching practices that you're implementing are doing a disservice to students, especially when there's no feedback loop. Um, when you only have that end of semester written reflection and there's no opportunity for students to get feedback in the middle of the semester on the second day of class when you've gone over your course syllabus and your guidelines and you're not creating opportunity for that to be a conversation as opposed to just a lecture about what you're expecting from students, make that more of a give or take relationship, right? So again, being an educator, educators need the support around them. Um, and I find in too that a lot of faculty operate in fear. I'm going to talk later in this episode about how students are using and some would say overusing their power in a way that is getting faculty fired for the things that they say, for the readings that they assign, for the movies that they assign in class. And so faculty are so bound up in, you know, I'm trying to protect my job. I'm trying to protect the work that I do and I, and I understand where it comes from, right? No one wants to feel like their job is under fire when they walk into the classroom. But I would say that the intentional relationship building at the beginning, like really getting to know your students and getting students to, be, to see themselves as experts and as invested in each other's learning creates an environment where there's trust so that the student doesn't feel compelled to go around your back and to go to the department chair to report something because you made a mistake. When you are open with your students that this is a learning environment, me as a professor, I'm decentering myself and I'm here for you. I make mistakes and I'm gonna try my best not to do that in this class, but just work with me and we're gonna be able to have a great semester together if we give each other grace. Like really deep, like really humanizing yourself and having that conversation uh, with students. And so again, 
uh, you know, faculty don't trust students. They judge students on what they might be reading in the media. They might judge students based on what they see from their you know, their nephew or niece or what have you, or the people that they know around them, really getting to know your students um, is something that faculty can do in order to bring about inclusive teaching. And then uh, the, the second part to that answer, so the first one was that there's no support for educators and we need opportunities for educators to practice teaching inclusively. And I wanna reiterate that just like we need to communicate to students that learning is difficult, we need to communicate to teachers that teaching is difficult. And I say that because teachers will facilitate a conversation and because it's hard to establish a feedback loop for your teaching, it's hard to tell how things went. Sometimes it just requires you to say as a teacher, look, we had that really intense conversation last class. How do y'all think that went? What are some of the things that you're taking away from that conversation? How can I help us and support us as we move forward throughout the semester? Remember those guidelines that we set in week one, those grounding principles. How do we feel like we're honoring those up until this point? Is there anything that you would change about the grounding principles that we've set, having that level of conversation with your students and that level of transparency, that level of communication with your students can lessen the burden on you when it comes to practicing in front of your students. And when we allow professors to talk to each other, outside of just the department chair meeting where there's a whole agenda where we're talking about logistics and we're talking about research and we're talking about like programmatic things that faculty need to know and we step outside of that and we have like real conversations just about teaching and students and what it's like to be an educator i've been in conversations with professors where they talk about going home in tears because of how a classroom experience went for them and it it breaks my heart not because the faculty member is having an emotional response to what's happening in the classroom a, a lot of that time a lot of the time those things are normal to have something happen in your professional work no matter what your field is and your senses that things didn't go well or you you're you're dwelling on what could have happened what could have went better but to not allow someone the ability to process those experiences, that presents a challenge when it comes to asking faculty to implement inclusive teaching practices. So what room are we giving for teachers to practice and to learn from each other as they go about practicing? The second thing I wanna say in response to the question of what makes it so difficult for faculty to implement inclusive teaching practices is the lack of feedback loop when professors have opportunities like mid-semester teaching feedback sessions where we have that at Georgetown where we have a colleague from our staff goes into the classroom about week eight, nine, ten, somewhere in the middle of the semester, the professor leaves the classroom and the facilitator has a conversation with the students about how the semester is going and what students want to see as far as improvements 
in the class. And these sessions are magical because students are really able to open up. They get into small groups, they get into pairs, they talk about what assignments are working, they talk about um, how organized or unorganized the professor is, they talk about certain subject matter that they're looking forward to or that they had a really hard time learning. They get to talk about the exam and how the exam prep is going, how just the pressure around grading in that class is affecting them. All of these things come up. And then at the end of that conversation that's facilitated by a colleague on our staff, the faculty member gets a written report as well as a follow-up discussion with whoever facilitated that session so that the faculty member can really understand where those students are coming from. And so that's when, and, and this is really helpful because instead of in week 18, on the last class of the semester, when you ask students how things went and then all of these things are coming up, you get to address it early. You get to be proactive. Uh, sometimes it might be reactive because there are some things that you could have done in week five that didn't go so well that students are gonna give you feedback on and we need to see that as a positive thing. And so establishing those types of feedback loops so that faculty know that the thing that they think is common sense is actually counter to what students need in that moment, is actually not helpful to the students that are in the classroom based on what those students are saying. Now I wanna transition a little bit to political polarization. So. Again, amazing insights on the mental health front. It was heartening to me to see the number of university presidents and deans and administrators that have established student advisory panels that have established uh, you know, student expert positions when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, when it comes to uh, career readiness pathways. These universities are being really creative in how they include students into the work seeing them as leaders and then students serving as a liaison between the leadership and the student body. I feel like that work is really powerful and it was um, heartening for me to see that other, other universities are prioritizing student voices in that way. And I think when we really talk about addressing mental health, not only in the clinical sense as far as our staff members that work in our universities that are so invaluable, but also how we can mitigate harm in the classroom, students are key in that work. Students are key in communicating what's effective and what's ineffective. And so they always need to be at the table when we have conversations about mental health. So I wanna get into political polarization. Um, this was, again, a big theme at AACNU. And I attended one of the plenary sessions in which it was a panel. And the panel was on how to avoid echo chambers when it comes to reading education news and communicating across difference. I feel like the term communicating across difference or the phrase rather communicating across difference has been really like a buzz phrase in higher ed lately. We use it at Georgetown. I see other liberal arts and private, you know, small private universities use this term to communicate the emphasis on combating polarization, bringing up conversation or facilitating conversation that might be seen as controversial, introducing those topics into classrooms, introducing those topics into learning environments, and 
the panel focused on, okay, how do we have these difficult conversations about what's going on in Gaza in the West Bank, about what's going on in Syria right now, about what's going on in the U.S. when we talk about police brutality that's still happening um, in our country among an array of other uh, happenings. And what our job or what our responsibility is as education practitioners to not only for my left-leaning political folks that are listening to this right now, not only read the New York Times, not only read Inside Higher Education, not only read the Hetchinger Report, but read things from the American Enterprise Institute, read things like uh, that come out of the 74 and these other more right-leaning, more conservative news outlets so that we're getting multiple sides of the conversation. and. I'm, I'm, I'm torn on this, really, when it comes to political polarization, because I believe in uh, preserving what you feel is right. Uh, but I also believe in opening your mind uh, to different viewpoints. And I think as educational change makers, as someone who um, would be considered a, as being involved in diversity, equity and inclusion work, it's important to understand the points of opposition that the opposing end of the political spectrum is presenting. So what points of opposition are they presenting so that we can address those things and have nuanced dialogue about them and see them when they bubble up in ways that are uh, really harmful, potentially harmful to students, to other faculty, in ways that might show up in, a, in an article, a news article that you might read how we can call out those things and see them and then we're inviting them into a conversation um, instead of it being combative, um, instead of, again, students and faculty going around each other's back to report certain things uh, when we don't like them. And I was able to hear a session kind of after that uh, later in the day. So we had the big plenary. There was a panel. And I'm going to get back to that. Uh, but we also had a session later on that that essentially talked about um, how to balance diversity, equity, and inclusion work and free expression in higher ed and how what is the relationship between those things and then how do we balance the scale um, so that equity work is enabled, but we're still able to have these difficult discussions and kind of allow for, for free expression to take place. Um, and I was able to hear from Lori White, who's the president of DePaul University, and she gave a great example about guiding students and how to go about bringing speakers to campus. And so we had these different campus groups um, and the example that she gave there was the Jewish Student Organization, and then there was the Black Student Union. And the Black Student Union wanted to bring in um, Angela Davis, who has um, expressed, or at least the students, the Jewish students perceived Angela Davis as uh, Palestinian leaning and her beliefs, and the Jewish Student Union didn't want the Black Student Union to bring in this particular speaker. Um, and in navigating that conversation, Lori helped those students realize that, okay, if you're trying to censor, one, it, you can't really control what someone says. And even the topic of the speech that Angela Davis was coming in to present had nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian uh, crisis. And so we're overlooking that to focus on this, this thing that is um, extremely top of mind on everybody's mind. But again, it's not like the title of the speech insinuated that this is what this speech was gonna be about. But even if it was, allowing 
speakers that don't necessarily align with what you believe in as a student group benefits you because that allows you to bring in a speaker that perhaps the Black Student Union or the Arab Student Union wouldn't necessarily appreciate you bringing in. And I think I think so many parties are responsible here. It's the students who are responsible for finding speakers, but it's also uh, the professors, it's also university leadership to guide students in understanding, okay, what, what does it look like to engage a speaker in a way that's productive for the campus community? So allowing a speaker to just give an open lecture um, might not be as helpful as having someone interview the speaker or having students facilitate a conversation with the speaker to bring about certain topics. And so, again, I think this is a this is a great example in understanding the implications of free speech in higher education because if liberal or left-leaning parties are using free speech or using the argument of free speech to censor speech on the other side, then that side is also going to use that same argument to censor things that are more left-leaning, things that are more liberal and uh, frankly more in alignment with diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And so free speech and diversity, equity, and inclusion really go together. They could, it can be difficult to grapple with, uh, but again, if we are not prepared to do that as institutions of higher education, then who else is? And so higher education institutions should be the place where this difficult dialogue is happening and it's hard to do research on a good speaker you can't control what people say but setting up environments when possible to engage the speaker in a way that's helpful and productive is something that we should be striving for uh, Quincy Beverly vice president of DEI at Providence College he was also in that session when it came to balancing DEI and free speech and he talks about how he used bulletin boards uh, posted on walls across the campus to engage students faculty and staff in difficult discussions now it started with the faculty and to my surprise but not really faculty weren't as game for difficult discussions as the students were and the students were bringing up topics like how student athletes are, are being supported on campus or even things that are happening in the news. I think there might have been a conversation that he mentioned about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that's happening right now. And students were more than willing to sit down and have constructive, respectful dialogue. I think there's so many themes to really touch on here, but I wanna focus on um, what President Beverly said, President Vice, Bev Vice President Beverly said in this scenario. And he was saying that before they even sat down to have this campus-wide conversation where students, uh, you know, there might've been four or five students sitting among literally hundreds of students in this auditorium who wanted to hear uh, this conversation. Before they even got to there, there was a conversation about having the conversation. There was a conversation about what constructive dialogue looks like, what it means to show up fully and to show up authentically, uh, but also to do so in a way that is preventing harming others to do so in a way that considers the person on the other side, to do so in a way that we are able to remove 
the thoughts and the opinions that people have from their personality. Again, critiquing the idea and not the person for people themselves to not be so attached to their beliefs to kind of put them out on a table so that people can scrutinize them so that people can, um, you know, kind of reflect on them and be able to build on them themselves. I think all of these things are important when it comes to difficult discussions. And the fact that students were more willing and ready to have these difficult conversations than faculty, that really I think it communicates how power dynamics are shifting in higher education. Usually in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, when we talk about power dynamics, we usually talk about the faculty member as having the power and the students don't have the power. It's the faculty member that gets to decide how a class runs and what grades students get on assignments and whether students go on to graduate school or whether students have access to internships and job placements and all of these things. And that's absolutely true. But what we're seeing in the news, in the media, we're seeing all these reports about faculty members getting fired, and the nucleus in a lot of those situations is a faculty member doing something in the classroom and then students taking it upon themselves to elevate it to the department chair. So we're having these trends where students are owning their power in educational settings and then acting on that. And it shows that the power dynamics in higher education, they're not just one-sided. So students are exercising their power too. And as a college student, I would say even some, especially our first generation college students or college students where our parents aren't as involved in our education. Sometimes it's even difficult to pinpoint who to talk to when something goes wrong. I think we're taught this message of if you see something, say something um, on social media. Uh, there's this idea that if you're not speaking up, your silence is your, your silence is violence. And I think that comes, I think that that message is being articulated when it comes to um, a lot of the social justice challenges that we see and that a lot of uh, activists are trying to solve. But I think it also comes up when we talk about what happens in the classroom, too, when students seeing themselves as change agents, students seeing themselves as uh, more autonomous over their education. So students are literally taking their power into their own hands and elevating it to the department chair when a faculty member says something out of pocket, when they show a particular article or movie that has some really harmful content um, in it. Even when faculty provide trigger warnings for students or give students the opportunity uh, to step out of the classroom, to opt out of the assignment, there are still students who elevate those things to the department chair and then it's a difficult conversation. And then even realizing where department chairs are coming from too, um, a lot of them are just like, all right, at the, at the end of the semester, instead of dealing with this headache and this fallout about the student reporting, um, you know, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Johnson. It was great having you this semester, but I think we're going to part ways. Uh, literally, this, this is how these things go. And students don't realize the power that they have. Some students are just like, I don't even know who to take this to. I'm just going to take it to um, the most powerful person that I know at the university that's related to this issue. So students are elevating what's happening in the classroom to their dean, to their provost, sometimes to their university vice presidents. Students are taking things up. Uh, at Georgetown, we have a student ombuds 
um, we also have a staff on bus too, but students not even realizing that they have a student on bus to go to uh, when it comes to managing conflict between classmates um, and even conflict that they might have with professors. An on bus will be able to um, identify pathways for students being able to navigate that so that it doesn't snowball into a conversation where a faculty member's job is on the line. Um, and so it's striking this balance between holding educators and staff members accountable for what they say, accountable for how they engage with students, but also realizing too that, again, they make mistakes. Um, they might have really good intentions, but there might just be a simple misunderstanding between the faculty member and the student. And so we're seeing these balance, these, this power dynamic shift in real time in a way that's uh, fascinating and is really at the top of mind of a faculty. And I speak to professors all the time, and I can tell you that this is a constant thing that is top of mind for professors about being fired in the classroom. There are faculty members that negate or push off entire units of their curriculum. They've had conversations uh, in previous semesters that they feel like they're no longer able to have because of the risk that's involved, the risk of a student reporting something and then they're immediately losing their job. And that is happening. Uh, we do see that. And so we have this culture of students going behind their professor's backs and reporting behavior to department chairs. Um, and so what does this mean uh, for those power dynamics? And one of the things that I think goes unsaid a lot when we talk about uh, this perceived sense of student entitlement. And so I hear a lot of faculty members and administrators say that students are entitled, they're soft, um, they don't know how to manage conflict, so they're always taking it up to the adults. And I take that message with a grain of salt. And what I would say to that is students and families are consumers at the end of the day. They are buying education in a lot of ways. Most students are not going on a full ride. And even if you are, that comes with certain costs and certain uh, things that you're entitled to that makes you feel like you're a consumer. And so when students are paying $80,000, $100,000, $150,000 for education, they're expecting a type of education. And when students and families are not getting the product that they thought they signed up for, that can create a really dangerous environment. And so I wanna take some of the responsibility off the student and then put it on the parents for a second too, because reflecting on my time as an undergraduate student at a small liberal arts college, I talk to my parents a lot. All of my friends talk to their parents a lot. Like students talk to their parents about what's happening. And so if our parents are incentivizing students to take it up to leadership, I think a lot of this has tones of helicopter parenting. I think it's really tough for first generation uh, college parents who don't know what it's like for students to learn in a completely new environment. There are some students who are raised um, around the same group of people their entire life. They haven't moved. Um, they've been in the same school district or at least the same city in which their school districts reside their whole lives. And so they're going across the state, in some cases across the country, and they're exposed 
to new ways of thinking. They're exposed to new conversations that they haven't had before. And there's a level of discomfort that comes up in students. And there needs to be a place for students to process those things. And sometimes that processing happens with parents. And sometimes parents haven't processed that themselves because they haven't been exposed to it. And so what kinds of messages are being passed from parents to students that are causing students to take these measures to hold faculty members accountable. And it's a challenge. I think there are multiple parties uh, who are responsible here. Okay, I've spent a lot of time talking about political polarization. Um, I learned a lot, took a lot of insights, and I'm coming out with some questions. And uh, there are really three, three main questions that I wanna point out here for the audience uh, to consider. The first one is what happens when students are more ready to have difficult conversations than faculty? Is this a sustainable model for higher education? Again, I see it snowballing into more reports of professors being fired for not being able to handle difficult discussions and students feeling frustrated and reporting that. Um, and it could be a really difficult situation when again, students are more prepared and more willing to bring what's happening outside of the classroom, inside of the classroom, and educators are not prepared to stimulate that learning. And so I think there's a lot of professional development that needs to be done, but that's one of the questions that's coming out. What happens when students are more ready to have those conversations than faculty? The other thing that's coming out for me is, what is the difference between academic freedom, free speech, and free expression? In higher ed circles that I've been in, I've seen these terms be used interchangeably, but my sense is that there's a level of difference among the three and I can't really put my finger on it. Um, but I, that's something that I wanna explore. And then lastly, the role of politicians in education. And really it's the idea that teachers and professors are supposed to stay teachers and leave the politicians to do their political thing. I think it's, part of this message is coming from acknowledging that politicians are having an outsized impact what happens in the classroom more now arguably than ever before and educators feeling like their jobs are under threat when it comes to not only the politics of education but how technology and artificial intelligence is affecting education they feel like the their jobs are at stake here and really wanting to hone in on their strengths as educators, as learning designers, as educational experts to value the importance of education and to not let politics uh, over influence that and to, and to really mess up that message. Uh, but I, but I, I, I lean on this framing that I've developed at Georgetown through my classes and through my professional work that teaching itself is a political act if you're teaching a US history course, if you're teaching an African-American history course, there is no way to, con to cover all of African-American history in 16 weeks, in 18 weeks. And so it is a political act with you as a, as a teacher or even you as a curriculum developer or designer to choose which parts of that curriculum is brought in, to choose the different ways that students get to interact with that curriculum. All of these are political decisions. Um, even how you incentivize participation in your class is a political decision. And so I think politics is at the core of education because in order to define the purpose of education, 
the purpose that whatever you come up with, whenever I just said that, there was probably something that might have popped into your mind. Whatever you think the purpose of education is, is guided by politics. And I think it what we see where we see the divisiveness is the politicians are doing their political thing and the educators are doing their educational thing, but very rarely do they come together in conversation because they're each trying to preserve what they have. They're trying to preserve their silos. But I think the more that we de-silo, uh, the better off we'll be. And again, it's just some thoughts that I have, but um, I need some extra space to kind of reflect on that. I know I covered a lot here. Let me know your thoughts on free speech and education by sending an email or audio recording to info at jdspeaks.com. Again, info at jdspeaks.com. If you want to equip your students with the skills needed to create a positive school culture, then I want to tell you about Self Talks. Self Talks is the student success program that is transforming middle, high school, and college students throughout the country. You might be familiar with social emotional learning programs or career readiness curriculum, but what makes Self Talks unique is how it combines content on academic success equity and inclusion, student leadership, and mental health for students. And the research shows that when students are thriving in all four of these areas, it leads to their personal success as students as well as their professional success after graduation. Self-talks is fully customizable to your school or district's needs. There's no cookie cutter content and every self-talk starts with a needs assessment with your leaders to remove your specific barriers to student success. No boring lectures, it's PBIS and Castle aligned and informed by the science of teaching and learning the stuff that actually works. So if you're looking to take your students to new heights this semester or the next, visit jdspeaks.com slash self-talks. That's jdspeaks.com slash S-E-L-F-T-A-L-K-S. All right, and we are back with another installment of The Playbook, where I give you the strategies to cultivate and continue your success as a student. If you're a student listening, I want you to do two things for me. Subscribe to the channel and turn on your notifications. And then a bonus third thing, you might wanna pull out your notebook if you're gonna take some notes, okay? And if you're a parent or educator watching this, hello, thank you for joining us. Save these ideas and share them with a student in your life. Now for today's installment of the playbook, we're gonna recap what we talked about last week because it connects to what I have to share this week. And so we're talking all about internships. Last week we talked about three main tips for internships. The first one is that if you don't see an opportunity that you want, don't be afraid to create it. The second one is don't take rejections personally. And the third one is to conduct informational interviews. and. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to leave the link to last episode so you can hear all uh, the, the nuggets and the details that I left within those three tips. You'll be able to find that below in the description. And today we're going to talk about two uh, tips with the time that we have left. The first one is to put together a portfolio. And we are starting to see a trend 
in education around e-portfolios, so electronic portfolios. This is specifically important for my college students. If you're a high school student, you might still have some time. You could ask your teachers about what it might mean to create a portfolio. Um, you could do this for free. You don't need any elaborate software to create a portfolio. You could literally uh, mock up a portfolio on Wix.com for free. And if you want to buy the domain, you can do that later. Um, I know WordPress, some colleges and universities have free access to WordPress for students. And so WordPress is a um, is an online website builder. You can be able to build your portfolio on there. For my graduate program, we have an e-portfolio that we deliver at the end of graduation. And our e-portfolio is, is so helpful for students when it comes to applying to internships because it makes you stand out from just the resume and the cover letter. It allows you to tell your story. It allows you to even display your skills, especially if you're in communications or marketing or business or graphic design. Uh, a portfolio is really helpful for those types of fields in journalism, right? You might be wanting to go into sports reporting and showing clips, showing uh, articles that you've written throughout your time at your undergraduate institution. Again, examples of your work um, can be really powerful in trying to get an internship. And it's more the idea around, it's more the idea around a portfolio instead of the actual doing of it that I want you to take away as a student. So even if you don't go to build an online portfolio that you're sending um, to organizations that you wanna work for as a sophomore or junior, having a portfolio understanding for yourself and really asking yourself what projects am i most proud of and how would i package those products uh how would i package those projects to display the skill that i want an employer to see so again i'm gonna pa i'm gonna package that for you all so you can take it with you what are examples of work that i'm proud of from my program and how can i package that around a skill that I want to display for the employers that I'm applying to. And so that's the whole idea around a portfolio. I know for me and my portfolio is gonna be my public speaking. It's gonna be by development work with faculty and showing my expertise as an educational developer, as a learning designer. It's gonna show my writing skills. I took a policy analysis and education class where I wrote about education policy around the country. These are, examples of projects, but also skills that I'm really proud of that I could see myself using in the future. And so you having a portfolio shows a level of foresight and initiative when it comes to your career after graduation that's gonna be really appealing to the, the employers that you'll be applying to. Um, and I, maybe I'll leave some resources around developing a portfolio too, if you're interested in hearing more about that. And then the second tip that I wanna give on internships um, is to talk to career advisors no matter what stage you're in. I talk to students all the time that think that they have to have everything together in order to talk to a career advisor. Um, and they prolong the process by trying to get everything perfect before they see them. Or there's a student that um, feels like they've got it all figured out. They've got everything together. They've had all the conversations that, that they don't need to talk to anybody else. What I would say to both of those students is that 
still go to the career office because your career advisors, they have connections with people in their professional networks that you might not be aware of. They're gonna know about graduate and professional programs that you didn't know were on your horizon. They're going to provide like tailored, constructive, individualized feedback on your application materials to make those better, to improve those. They're gonna give you insights on how to make connections in your field. They're gonna give you a landscape of the jobs that are available and popping right now in your field. And so leaning on the experts, leaning on the expertise of our career advisors, I cannot stress that enough for any student who wants to find a successful internship this year. And so we're gonna review the five one more time. Number one, if you don't see opportunities that you want, don't be afraid to create them. Don't take rejections personally. Conduct informational interviews, put together your portfolio, and then at any point, at any point in the process, it could be before or after all of that, take opportunities to talk to your career advisors. I cannot stress that enough. Now we have a few minutes left for the weekly read. Uh, this weekly read comes by way of Inside Hiker Ed, uh, who reported that last week, Florida's uh, State Board of Education voted to prohibit spending on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at 28 state colleges. This came just two days after MLK Day, where the State Department of Ed celebrated Dr. King for us, quote, dedication, for his quote, dedication to service and equality. Uh, I feel like this news communicates a lot. I don't think it's a coincidence that just a few, um, just a few days before, uh, well, at the dropping of this news, we also found out that Governor Rob DeSantis is no longer running for president in the 2024 presidential election. And with that said, I think that this is an example of DeSantis taking advantage of a policy window, realizing that him dropping out of the race while also making this really big power move um, can help him maintain his legitimacy, his institutional legitimacy, the legitimacy, the legitimacy within his voter base and allowing him to keep power and favor within his base. I think also too, um, this shows Governor DeSantis as a skilled storyteller. And these are skills that he's probably developed in his time earning a law degree at Harvard and an undergraduate degree at Yale. So this man is not dumb. He knows the, the storytelling and the narrative and the narrative that he's building around um, really the attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion in education is around protecting merit, is around protecting, um, protecting hard work, uh, trying to dismantle preferential treatment uh, in education. These are the, the messages that he's, you know, academic freedom, uh, facts, right? Like these words that carry a lot of weight He's manipulating them in order to, um, you know, protect a certain type of education, a type of education that discounts um, our nation's history, which dates back to 1619, um, and and really discounting the work of educational experts and curriculum designers and curriculum developers that have done so much work to pour into these programs. And I guess the last thing I'll say on this is that. 
on the panel at AACNU, Kelly, Cor uh, Kelly uh, Corrigan, one of many great panelists, uh, shared final thoughts toward the end of that panel. And she said, uh, what we're doing now, you know, unquote, referring to the difficult conversation that they were having amongst probably about 400 people in that room about political polarization and education. Um, what they did on that stage is what she hopes her daughter can be able to do once her daughter has done her bachelor's degree program. And all I'll say is that when we talk about the elimination of diversity, equity, and inclusion, when we see what happened to Claudine uh, Gay, former president of Harvard University, who in those congressional hearings was grilled and asked about affinity groups on campus, about diversity, equity, and inclusion on campus, um, and was really under attack for allowing those spaces at Harvard University, we are taking steps backward um, when it comes to our advancement in developing students' skills and having those difficult discussions. And so when I go back to Kelly Corrigan and her wishes for her daughter to be able to have difficult dialogue, to be able to talk across the difference, to be able to talk to people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different religions, different ways of, of being and living, we are getting further away from that when we have the elimination of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our school. So whether you value that or not, whether you think that skills, that these are skills that students should be learning or not, all I'm saying is that what we're seeing happen in Florida, where funds are being stripped, um, where we see the attacks on diversity, equity, and inclusion and throughout the country, when we see um, how Claudine Gay resigned from the Harvard University presidency but was really forced out, um, you know, this is really indicative of what we're facing and we're taking steps back when we talk about um, you know, bringing about equity and inclusion, not only within our higher ed institutions, but also in our country overall. With that, I will conclude the episode. My name is Jordan Davis. Thank you all for your time. Please like, subscribe, comment, leave a review, um, share with somebody, turn the notifications on however you're listening to this. Stay tapped in and I will see you 